0: If we haven't met, my name is Luke. It's good to have you here today. I'm enjoying this series through the book of Acts. So if you have a device or a Bible, we're going to be in Acts 4 today. It's a fascinating passage, I think. It's uh, one of my favorites. I know I say that every week. I know it all can't be my favorite, but I really do love this passage. Acts 4. It's going to be a great day to show us Christ more clearly. And it's also the Super Bowl. So we have that today as well, right? Super Bowls tonight, but the uh, Vols are not in it, so I know that only 6% of you care. Um, The other 94% can watch the commercials tomorrow on YouTube. You can do that now. You don't have to watch them in real time. You don't even have to watch the game anymore to catch the commercials. Also, besides commercials tomorrow, you can see a lot of game dissection. Everyone's going to pick apart every play every quarter, every decision made. I'll tell you, there's gonna be more dissection than just that, there's gonna be cultural dissection as well. Um, A lot of people are going to look at all the behaviors on and off the field and the opinions and the views that are expressed in commercials and on the sidelines. And I guarantee you this, somebody or something, a company or a person will be canceled Tonight, I'll put money on it. It's going to happen. Someone's going to do something or say something that is going to offend the masses. It is coming. And I am fascinated with culture just in general. It's what I went to school for. And I'm always fascinated by how it grows and builds and evolves and changes across time. So, cancel culture for me is something that's fascinating and fatiguing. At the same time, it's kind of fascinating and interesting because we see this herd accountability that didn't exist before, um, but it's also fatiguing because there is no forgiveness for it. Just in the last couple of weeks, popular culture has already mothballed a bunch of people, putting them in timeout until their apologies have been perfected and they have learned their lesson. And you've probably seen it in the headlines of whatever app you're using. Whoopi Goldberg has been dumped. For expressing her view on a show called "The View," by the way. And so she was given a timeout. She gave an apology, ish, something like an apology. After that, Joe Rogan was shunned for things that he has said over the years. Kind of gave a, a somewhat of an apology. But then Spotify was canceled because they hold his show. We saw the rock who I didn't even think you could boycott The Rock. I thought he was kind of up on the same shelf with Dolly Parton and Peyton Manning. You cannot cancel The Rock. But he was boycotted for about 16 seconds because he backed up Joe Rogan, but then he pivoted, but he didn't pivot quick enough. The Olympics are around, and Eileen Gu, who is a free skier out of California, is not representing the United States, but representing China in an Olympics that nobody's even watching, I bet. And yet she is also canceled, We have leaders all over the nation being canceled because they are in pictures without a mask with people that they are requiring to wear masks, not going so well for them, so they are being canceled as well. And we have a lot of other people still in the corner from 2021 hoping that their timeouts end and they can go back to life as they normally had it. They want people to forget, but we don't forget so easily anymore, do we? Because we have social media. You know, social media does something that it didn't do before the year 2000. And it allows us to basically disinvest in people and de-platform people for something that they might've done 30 years ago, 40 years ago in some cases, when it wasn't so cringy back then. And because it is happening now, it is cast in the bronze of the internet for all time. You see, before social media, you might hate something that I say, but your influence might not be that deep. So eventually you'll run out of gas. Nobody will really care what you were saying, but now all of us are just a a viral hashtag away from being disappeared in shame. It's possible, and I find all of that interesting. Also interesting is the pendulum swings the other way, and those who have canceled others themselves are being canceled. So apparently it's contagious, and you know people are getting canceled for not sticking up for people who are being not canceled or sticking up for people who are being canceled. You can even be canceled for not saying anything at all. If you're silent at the wrong times, you can also be canceled. So I find all of this very interesting, but probably most interesting is the apology. The apology that comes as somebody has been canceled. I'm hearing phrases like, I was unaware. I'm in a space of education right now. I'm being taught in this moment. I'm sad at who I used to be. Or I'm not that person anymore. I hear that a lot. I vow to do better. I will do better. I'm embarrassed over my ignorance. And if you're a celebrity and you don't know how to craft these apologies, fret not, there are firms you can pay and they will build one for you. The apology. And the most effective ones are self-deprecating ones because it's, this is a social penance in an attempt to get out of social purgatory. It works for some and not for others. But as I read editorials and blogs written by Christian leaders regarding cancel culture, they're, they're, they're approaching the same thing. They're using different headlines, different words. But the basic question that I'm hearing repeatedly is how should the church interact with cancel culture? I don't think it's a very provocative question, to be honest with you. I think it's quite obvious from the leadership of Jesus how we handle cancel culture. I mean, one of the implications of the gospel is we handle people who fail. We handle people who say dumb things and do dumb things as people who ourselves were welcomed and brought close to God, even though we are not well behaved. We are serial misbehaviors, in fact. So I'm not sure why there's such heavy discourse on this. I mean, Christ, if you just take a cursory glance at how he ministers to others, he is pulling close to him prostitutes and murderers and adulterers and racists and villains. He's bringing them close. And he's giving them grace, favor, despite them. Just despite their worst and their best attempts at doing this thing called life. He's bringing them close. He's making it very clear to all of us that he himself will hold the gospel together. That he himself will bring failed people close to him. Because you and I should be cosmically boycotted. That is what we deserve. And yet he takes our unrighteousness and gives us his own righteousness. And we have a God who does not disinvest in his people. And because this is true, it informs how we handle each other. See? It's simple. It's simple, how we're supposed to engage, cancel culture. But I've got a better question for us, one that I'm much more interested in asking. Why isn't the church getting canceled faster? Different question, right? I mean, you are the bad guys now. You are, you are the villains in culture today. To borrow from Stephen McAlpine, a quote from one of his books, he says, the only way to stop being a bad guy in the eyes of the world is to become what the world says is a good guy. And right now that means compromising in all kinds of areas where the world beckons one way and the Bible points another. So maybe if we could just borrow his words for a moment, I would love to explore the concept of endeavoring maybe to be the the best bad guys we can and to make disciples who are even badder than we are. I think the better question is, is, how do we flourish as bad guys? Not because we're unloving, but because we're unyielding where it matters the most. Unyielding. So today in our passage, we're going to get to see society basically throw its first punch at the spirit-filled church. Until this time in our story, as we've been kind of floating through the first three books or chapters of Acts, the church, the young church, its hurdles are mostly relational administrative or relational and structural. That's the basic hurdles. And they're going to still have these hurdles as the church grows. And we'll hit those as we go through future chapters. But questions like, how do we follow up with salvations? Like, what do we ask? What, What does that even look like? Who does it? How do we find facilities? That's a question we all know about here, right? At Legacy. How do we find facilities? Bigger living rooms. Bigger places because we have more people. Where do we keep all the collected goods? When people sell land and they bring money, who gets to keep that? Who says who gets to keep that, right? These are good questions. Who's baptizing who? Why do they get to do it? What's happening with our teenagers? These are all great questions. Many of them we are still asking today. But their issues were mostly structural until this point. That all changes now. Now opposition is going to come from what society would call the good guys. The good guy elite. So let's look in chapter 4, verse 1. This is going to show us a picture of Jesus and a picture of his spirit-filled church in a way that we should see Christ much more compellingly. The word of the Lord for us is this. Luke says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Let's just pause for a second. I want to walk through this passage today. The Sadducees Uh, In our words today, we would call them the more progressive edge of the religious elite. They didn't believe exactly the same things that the Pharisees did. They they, they would differ in areas like the resurrection or angels even. Um, But one thing that they both agreed on is Jesus was not really fitting their narrative. At all, so they took Team Peter and they imprisoned him until morning, because I guess the courts were closed, but in the process, more people are born again, up to five thousand men. This is incredible okay it, just just to maybe not lose this number for a moment it 's important to be reminded that they counted by household. This is a patriarchal society. So they counted by household. And back then, when the patriarch, the dad, the husband, whenever they became radically born again, typically, not always, typically there was a rapid spread of the gospel in that household. Statistics will show you today, if you were to go to a school on missions or take a class on missions, that even now, when missions agencies are in some of our more third world Um, demographic or areas, they, they have a choice. They can reach the mothers, the matriarchs of the family, or the patriarchs. And there's actually a rate at which the whole household trusts in Jesus after the mom is led to the Lord first versus when the dad is led to the Lord first. And it's much faster statistically when the father comes to know Jesus first. It's been that way in America as well. But that's why missions agencies, when they go into a new tribe or they go to a new little speck of land that doesn't really see the gospel that often, they will go straight to the dads, straight to the chieftains, straight to the patriarchs of that culture. Okay, So what we have here is a moment where 5,000 men representing 5,000 households become radically born again. Most scholars estimate this could range up to 20,000 people. 20,000 people. People, right? Man, woman, and child, most estimates. It's hard to tell. Some of these guys were probably single. Some probably had six kids. Who knows? 10 to 20,000. What's important is Jerusalem's population back then was estimated to be between 40 and 80,000 people. Pretty small. Let's just round up because math is hard for me. I went to Texas Tech. Let's just say it's 100,000 people, all right? Let's assume that half of them were men. That's just 50,000 men, right? That's a fair assumption. 5,000 men would represent 10% of the city. 10% of this new city is born again. This is a radical number. You're going to see a cultural shift anytime 10% of the population goes in one direction abruptly. To put those numbers in today's context to maybe make it make sense a little bit more for you and me, Knox Metro area, which is our county and the six or seven counties that touch Knox Metro, is around 869,000 people right now. That was of the 2020 census. It's actually grown 12% since then. I'll let you do the math. We're just going to stick to the official numbers we know of. 869,000 people. If half of them were men, stick with me, some of you are already, your eyes are already glazed and I can see it from here, all the way from up here. 434,000 men in our metro area. It would be like 43,000 of them becoming Christian very quickly, 43,000. But let's just say that the households, not just the men, but the units, the family units, the average American family is 3.15 people You do the math, you come up with 137,000 people in our metro area becoming a Christian within, like that. Just like that. 137,000 people. That's enough to fill Maryville five times. It fills this room 250 times. That's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. The reason I drag you through that math is to show you, do you see why the elite are flipping out a little bit right now? You see why they're stuffing Peter in a cell and they're not waiting till morning. Why they're getting it done right now. The elite, they are not annoyed. They are greatly annoyed, it says. Greatly. Because the fabric of culture is ripping right in front of them. Everything is shifting. This is what, in missions, this is what we call a spiritual awakening. That's all that's happening right now a spiritual awakening. It's different from a revival. A revival just simply means what it sounds like it means. Something was alive, then dead, and then is revived back to life. So it's typically applied to a church. Churches have revivals. Cities have awakenings, right, where everyone is quickened with the revelation of who God is in the person of Christ. This is what we're seeing here is a spiritual awakening. Let me just say it still happens. This is something we can pray about. Not not for some random latitude and longitude on a globe, but right here in our own city, one of the things that I am most excited about in being a part of a church like this is not just to be big, that's, that's kind of boring and predictable, or not just to plant a bunch of churches, but maybe maybe by God's grace, to build something beautiful, so that when spiritual awakening comes, we can steward it well. We have people that know how to make disciples. It's easy for us to make disciples. Pray for this in your city. I'm resolved it's going to happen. Let's keep going. I could preach on that all day. Let's look at verse 5. Verse 5, and we're going to go through verse 13 and then pause again. It says, On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power? Or by by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Okay, Jesus, just to remind you, in the Gospels, he had promised his disciples that he would give them words of wisdom and power whenever they are in front of the elite. He just said it. He said it in two different ways. In Luke 21, stay where you're at in Acts. In Luke 21, he says, But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Earlier in the 12th chapter, same book, it says, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will Teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. There's some there's some big principles just in the scripture that we've read so far. One is that we're gonna be persecuted. If you live a Christ-shaped life, if you call yourself a vibrant Christian, persecution is just, it's, it's what's for dinner. It's on the menu for us. We're going to have it. The second thing we learn is that opportunities are actually inside of persecution. That's important. We usually think that if we can get persecution out of the way, then we'll have opportunities. Wrong. Opportunities are actually inside of the persecution. Third, we see that we can be rested. This says, don't be anxious, Right? We don't have to be frenetic in our heart. We can be still in our heart. And then the fourth is that we'll have words. The Holy Spirit will tell us what to say. That's pretty cool. Because we're not going to know what to say, and we'll be scared of what to say. But we can trust in God's Spirit that he will empower us like he's doing Peter, this uneducated man right now. Now here's some observations that we're going to catch throughout the book of Acts, and that we've even seen in history since then. When you are persecuted, you will not feel or be made to feel like you are one of the good guys. It's not going to happen. It's easier to be persecuted when everybody in the room sees you as noble and courageous and just and wise and righteous and just right. Well, that's easy. But Jesus didn't even get that. He himself didn't even get that. You're going to be handled as if you are the one that is unrighteous. You are wrong. You will be canceled and shunned as if you should be ashamed of your behavior, ashamed of your words. You should be ashamed for the things that you even think. That's how it's going to happen. You'll be labeled as bigoted, unloving, phobic, archaic, misogynistic. You will be what's wrong with this world. It'll be you. You'll feel misunderstood. You'll feel mislabeled. Your words will be ripped out of context. Your life will be ripped out of context. You will be lied about. That's just part of the suffering that we find in persecution. I think maybe the worst part, to be honest with you, in being persecuted. Your soul, the soul of your soul, will just want to cry out and say, No, 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 you don't understand. (laughs) You don't understand. You don't understand. I'm a better person than what you think. You don't understand. But here's the truth. Those on the outside shouldn't be so easy to understand and comprehend your life to begin with. Your life should be semi-incomprehensible or else it's going to look just like theirs. It should be hard for them to understand. Maybe even shocking for them to see how you carry yourself. It might be shocking for the world to see how you handle your money, your mouth, your marriage, your time, your values, your future, your everything. You see, one of the big ideas for our passage in Acts, Acts 4, is that living a life that is gospel-shaped will greatly annoy people, greatly annoy people, and today's good guys will disapprove of you. They will. Good guys in society, listen, they're going to be fine and they're going to celebrate and applaud things like gender being bent in every direction except for what the Bible prescribes. The good guys of society will be totally fine with abortion. They'll be totally fine with defining marriage in any other way except for what the Bible blesses us with. The good guys in our culture will have a way of showing you what is good and what is bad? I mean, listen, we're, we're going to watch a lot of Super Bowl commercials tonight and tomorrow, and they're going to show you what is righteous and unrighteous now. They're going to tell you what's a sin and what's good to think about, what's applause-worthy and what's not. This is what we're going to see. One of the things that we teach in our missional living class is whenever we do assess a neighborhood or a city, when we try to learn about the people that we are among, and if you grew up here, it doesn't mean you know the people very well, by the way. One of the questions we ask is, What does this culture see as a sin? What does it see as noble? What is righteous to this people group? What is unrighteous to this people group? Here's the thing. Tonight, that messaging is not going to be so subtle. It's not going to be so hidden. It's going to be pretty obvious how you should feel about cultural items. You see, Peter and his friends were the bad guys here because they're indoctrinating Thousands of people away from the old traditions of self-cleansing and sacrifices. The elite disapproved, but the passage says they knew one thing. These guys had been with Jesus. I think that's super cool. At some point, one Sadducee looked across the table to another Sadducee, or however they sat, I don't know, but they said, hey, listen, that guy does not look a lot like us, but he does look a lot like Jesus. He does look a lot like his mentor. We got to give him that. That's really cool. And I love how Peter preaches here. And this is going to be a big cue for us because this is how you will be canceled when you are canceled. The gospel that Peter is putting out there, the same gospel we extend, is incredibly exclusive. It's not inclusive at all. It says this in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So there's a double use of a negative there. Not a double negative, but there's two negatives meant to kind of lift that piece of the passage for you and me to see that there is no compromise here. Either Jesus saves or nothing saves. That's what Peter's telling us. And people have been trying to water this down since 30 A.D., It's hidden, hidden in phrases that we've all heard before. Like good people, good people go to heaven because Jesus is too loving for people to suffer in hell, right? He's too loving. Society, or the good guys, right? They see one singular characteristic of God at the cost of all the others, and that is that God is loving. God is always loving, and that's true, he is. But he has other characteristics as well. He's also just, he's also righteous. And the gospel that he tells us tells us that sin is hard baked into us since the fall in the garden. And that's why we need the cross. The cross becomes this intersection for you and for me, this place where justice and mercy meet, where righteousness is swapped out for an unrighteousness. It's the place where we carry our broken lives. But society as a whole won't see anything broken with their lives. Won't see the need of carrying it to the foot of any cross. Peter says here, no one else, no other name. No one else, no other name. That is the message that will get you unfollowed, friend, deplatformed, right there. And I submit we lean into it. We lean into it, for there is no other hope for people. No other. You are declaring that people need to change, and it's really hard for people to hear that. Let's look at verse 14. Read just a few more verses. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident. And all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. This is fascinating to me because they they clearly see this Jesus thing has gotten out of hand. It's out of hand right now, right? And it's important for you to know, because Peter knew this, when Peter was standing there, these are the same people that had judged Jesus wrong and had crucified him three months, give or take, earlier, around 100 days. Think about that. Same people. It's the same, it's the same group. Three months isn't that long. Three months ago, you are all asking each other what you're going to do for Thanksgiving. What are you doing for Thanksgiving? That's how fresh it is. Everything was still fresh. The emotion, the, the craziness about it all. The sky going dark and the earth being shaken and Christ crying out from the cross. That is all very fresh. And the elite felt like they needed to snuff this out and get it done quick. Because why? Because Peter's starting to sound a whole lot like his mentor. And that was greatly annoying to them. Annoying. And you know, growing up reading this passage as a young Christian, I always wondered about the word annoying. Why that word? It seems like an inappropriate word for this part of the story. It sounds, it sounds like they should be angered, like greatly, greatly mad, <laughs> greatly angered, even greatly frustrated, but annoyed? They were annoyed because they were inconvenienced. That's what happens when we're inconvenienced. We get annoyed. Truth can do that. The truth can do that. Because what they're having to say and what they are saying is, is if Jesus' spirit truly healed this congenital cripple over here, then life can't go on as it has been going on. Then nothing is normal anymore as I used to know normal. Everything's got to change. That's inconvenient. It's inconvenient. You've got a healed cripple over there brand new legs. He's doing more lunges than everyone else can do because he's got brand new legs. He's excited about it. Showing off his brand new legs. And then Peter's being very loud. And all of this is laying siege to their safe lives. I remember hearing the gospel change my life as a college student. I remember where I sat. I remember hearing it. And one of the things that provoked me the most was the thought of how inconvenienced I was gonna be and how happy I was for it. But I remember thinking to myself, if what this guy is saying is true, and I'm pretty sure it is, if what he is saying is true, I cannot, cannot just get back in my car and go about life as I I did. Like everything's gotta change. My values, my goals in life, how I looked at women, how I looked at money, how I looked at everything has to change. You see, what I can't wrap my head around in this passage is that these guys knew that Jesus was right, and they see this cripple doing stuff that cripples don't do, and rather than just repent and join 5,000 men, they suppress the truth. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around. It shouldn't be, though. Jesus spoke to this in John 3. He says, and this is the judgment The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And these men were being exposed. So they were annoyed, greatly annoyed. And that same spirit of the Sadducees is alive and active today. Listen, you can bring miracles and powerful declarations and the Holy Spirit can be thick and there could be revival and awakening all around you and many will still want darkness. Many will still want it. So they're trying to get in front of this. Now, 90-ish days before, there were only about 120 disciples. Now there's around 20,000. So they can't just extinguish it. All they can do is compress it and try to contain it. So they go into this containment strategy with this, hey, we're going to let it slide this time, but don't let it happen again, right? You always know that the authority has lost control whenever that comes out of their mouth, right? Okay, we'll let it slide this time, but don't let it happen again. Nobody takes that serious, right? But this is a pinnacle moment for us to put ourselves in. If you could put yourself into this story, this is where I want you to do it because this is where it's tempting to fold right here right here. If you imagine yourself standing with Peter and not wanting to just go full bore straight into them, you're not alone. You're not alone. Let's look at what he says in verse 19, because this is where it gets impressive. This is when you know the Holy Spirit's involved. It says, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, (laughs) they just kept threatening them. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So Peter basically says, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. I mean, I hear you. It's one of those things where you say, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I hear," But he's they're not going to do it. They're going to keep going. My heart, just to be honest, between you and me, don't tell anyone else. If I'm standing in those shoes right there and I'm looking at those men, my heart will be tempted to say, you got it. I won't rock the boat. I won't rock the boat. We'll, we'll be quieter over here. We'll do our Bible study. It'll be a quiet one. It'll be in our corner, but we'll be good guys. We won't be bad guys. We won't cause you any problems. You don't cause us problems. We won't cause you any. You see, compromise is easy to find when prison is too. Compromise is easy to find when persecution is hovering right there. We can hide behind a million excuses, but when told to stop the hate speech of an exclusive gospel, we've got to fold into gear with Peter here whenever he says, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Why? Because there is no one else, and there is no other name. That's why. All right, verse 23. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servants whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and that your plan predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That part of the passage actually deserves its own sermon or two. I will just say, I think it's super cool that this shaken place is slowly producing an unshakable people, as we will see in all the future chapters. But the big question I want to return to in this last part of the time I have with you is, how do we flourish in a society that is canceling Christians? in an age of a Sadducee spirit. How do we do this? Because listen, you're not going to get your own viral hashtag, likely. It's probably not going to happen. But you'll stop getting invited. That'll stop. You'll stop getting included. You'll stop getting mentioned. You'll be unfollowed. Job opportunities will be a little sketchy. You probably already intuit this. Again, I'm challenged by this passage. I am Strongly, I feel a draw to be silent in the face of being canceled because I'm just like you. I want to fit in, I want to get along, I want to be liked, I want to be accepted, I want to be loved. And my temptation in that moment is just going to be thinking in my mind, how can I temper this offensive, exclusive message and make it maybe a little bit gooier, a little less of a lightning rod. And I'll tell you one of the questions that kind of platforms this, I've gotten this question more and more and more as time goes on, as this church gets older, I find it coming in in person, by email, by text, and it's this, is legacy or you, are you an accepting church? Are you an accepting church? And what they mean is with an active gay lifestyle, are you an accepting church? That's such a loaded question. The answer is, maybe. I mean, we accept you if you have a pulse, right? Yes, we accept you. And our front door is just as wide as Jesus made it, right? I mean, we are a perfect place for failed people, for struggling people. We're a perfect place for addicted people, for rebels. We're perfect. The gospel's perfect for you, and you are perfect for the gospel. Everyone is welcome. But then I get a, a look in return, and it's one of these looks. But you know what I mean. But look, you know what I mean. Whenever I say, "Are you and you know what I mean?" And what they're really asking in that is, can they conveniently have their lifestyle too? Or will we inconvenience them with that? You see, exclusivity still greatly annoys, and it still inconveniences the truth if you didn't already know it, is we do not embrace what Jesus died to crush. We don't. We don't provide cover or hospitality to sin because the culture says it's what good guys do. It would, in fact, be removing blood from the cross. It would, in some ways, be saying that Jesus died to cover all sins, or as we saw last week, what it means to blot them out, except for what you don't want to be a sin that thing that you don't want to require, repentance. But just a quick warning to the missionaries in the room, if we refuse the exclusivity of the gospel, we are simply comforting people on their way to destruction. That's all we're doing. Frankly, that's the most unloving thing in the world anyone can do. Unloving. Sure, they're going to feel accepted. You might get some applause in the moment, but they're going to carry destruction with them. They'll love you. To what end? To what end? No one else, no other name. Here's the thing about our hunger for approval as we close this out. It was actually installed in you by God. He gave you that hunger, this desire to be liked, to be loved, to be accepted. He gave it to you. He, he installed it in your operating system whenever you were born. It was just meant to be satisfied vertically in Him Above all things, that He is the greatest good in a world of goods. That's what it is. He has handcrafted us to be satisfied and totally content in Him above all things. And what we do is we bend it horizontally and we try to get it from the world instead. And the world will never give it to you. It'll never give it to you. And if you're not fed or nourished by the love of the world, then you lose little when you are disinvested in, when you're canceled. You're free to be unfollowed. It'll cost you momentary sadness, or it should, when you're not invited to things anymore, when people handle you differently because of your... I mean, that should produce some sadness. Unless you're some psycho or something that doesn't care about what people think, that's not that healthy. It should hurt a little bit when you are rejected, but it doesn't destroy you anymore. It's not a living hell for you anymore. These unshakable people, they're not better than you, by the way. They're just happy in Jesus. They're satisfied in the Lord. They were the bad guys in a canceling world. Friend, listen, if this is a struggle for you, if you want to be loved more than loving, then this can be a moment of repentance for you. I know it is for me. I mean, I want you to imagine being in that middle of that little arena with all, these, all the influencers of the world, everyone's got all the power and the influence and they're glaring down at you, and they're saying to you, don't do this again. Don't do it again. Does your thirst for being a good guy outpace your thirst for Jesus? Are you tempted to edit the gospel to be a little bit less exclusive? If you are, let me remind you, it's in no one else, and it is in no other name. And listen, if you're here and you are far from God, and listen, I know we have people every week that are not Christians. We have people watching right now that I know are not Christians. If you're far from God or maybe you're not even sure, I'm just going to give it to you straight right now. If you want to be adored by the world, Christianity is not going to give that to you. It's not. If you want to float downstream with the current of the culture as one of the good guys, you need to count the costs. Count them. Jesus will get you deplatformed <laughs> quickly. Salvation is a beautiful thing in that it's free and it's expensive simultaneously at the same time. Because it is the message that if it's right, everything has to change. That cost, that has an expense to it.